I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. As an observant young girl and a curious tween, Aisha Harris was deeply immersed in pop culture. Her early fandom led her to a career as a cultural critic whose hot takes, pithy observations, and deep dives into cultural shifts are broadly admired. Harris has captured her adventures in pop culture in her first book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Aisha Harris is a co-host and reporter for the NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. She previously wrote for Slate and the New York Times and holds degrees in theater and cinema studies. Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, is her first book. And Aisha Harris joins me now from Oakland, California. Welcome, Aisha. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. And I was thinking as I... uh, learned of your credentials and now, of course, know of your work, that you are probably one of the few um, children who uh, went in a different direction in college and maybe the parents questioned it, but it paid off for you big time, (laughs) the cinema studies and all of that. So you really know your stuff. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, in fact, my parents were totally cool with it. My dad actually was very encouraging of me doing theater and film studies. He's a writer himself. Um, so it actually, I, I lucked out in that there was never any, why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer? You know, it was, you know, follow your dreams, do what you love. And I'm lucky that I'm able to do that. Well, you do it so well. I enjoy uh, you and your colleagues on uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour. But I have to tell you, as others have have written as they've read your book, my God, you know a lot of pop culture, Aisha. <laughs> as yeah. I, I mean, you know a lot of pop culture. The references are so fast and rich in your book, which makes it so interesting. But I'm just curious about how you ob- not only absorb, but keep up at the level that you do, because, of course, it's your job. But, you know, in order to do what you do, um, as you've revealed in this book, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And <laughs> I I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Uh, but, you know, in part because it's my job, but also because even when I'm watching or reading or consuming any sort of art or media If it's not for work, I'm still in the back of my mind thinking of, okay, perhaps down the line, this could be something that I touch on years later or months later. Uh, You know, there are things that I studied in in undergrad and grad school that have still served me well. I've gone back to like I've kept so many of my books and so many of the the excerpts and things that I was reading in college in grad school. And I go back to them and sometimes I'm actually directly referencing them. So it's it's a lot of taking notes. It's a lot of keeping things. I'm kind of a hoarder when it comes to <laughs> to both books and notes. And I think that's kind of what helps me stay, stay as up and as absorbed as I can in addition to all the things that I'm doing for my actual job on a day-to-day basis. I think sometimes people hear pop culture and think that's kind of light or, and or frivolous and doesn't really have any meaning beyond the thing itself. So I'd love someone uh, like yourself, who is so well-versed in it, to really give um, 
uh, a response back to those people too, to explain why pop culture not only shaped you, as you've said in your book, but really shapes all of us. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the main thesis for this book is that I want to make it very clear that while, of course, there are people in my profession who are doing, you know, the hard hitting journalism, they're on the front lines, they're talking about, you know, everything from the pandemic to the the elections and things that are happening. Um, all of those things are still very much connected to pop culture because pop culture, especially American pop culture, is one of the hugest exports in the world. It is how a lot of other nations and, and cultures think of us. And, and that is what they think of, like whether it's hip hop, whether it is uh, Hollywood movies, Marvel movies, Assemble. Martin Scorsese movies. My daughter says that uh, you're half Jewish. Um, just the good half. <laughs> All of these things are sort of very ingrained in how America sees itself and views itself and how other people view America. Um, and I think that especially considering how often pop culture intersects with uh, the things that are happening. And I also think, you know, if pop culture wasn't so... Uh, important, we wouldn't have all of these right-wing conservatives railing against certain things in pop culture, drag shows being banned and books being banned and mm. all of those things. And I think that it's really important. And what I wanted to get across and want to be is that like there's there's the the micro level, there's how it affects us, how we think of ourselves, how it shapes how we view our gender, our sexuality, our race. But there's also the macro and how all of that spills over into how we treat each other online and, you know, and, and in our interpersonal relationships. It's, it's all just like pop culture is shaping us. And we have the power also in many ways to shape it right back. Well, that's one of the things that I found very interesting. We should say that the book uh, is made up of essays um, and it's a memoir so that because as you in the title it says the pop culture that shapes me so we're uh learning about how it shaped you and um then broaden out uh to how it actually shapes us as as you've described but the memoir pieces of it as it connects with your uh work as a culture critic is are very very interesting okay. um, let's start with the title of the book um um, we should say that the 90s are very, very important to you in your um, both observation, ab absorption, and thinking about pop culture as it relates to your life. And you make that clear in the book. So uh, a 90s hit that a lot of people will be familiar with is um, the uh, Spice Girls song, Wannabe. You know what? I didn't. I don't think I knew the name of the song. I just knew the lyrics, but I never knew the name of the song. So yeah. talk about uh, "Wannabe" because it made it to the title of your book as an influence, uh, as part of the influence on you uh, from that '90s period. Yeah, I am very much a millennial kid, uh, an '80s baby, '90s kid, and the '90s were when I was really formulating my identity as an adolescent and wannabe, of course, is the Spice Girl song. And I see it as sort of a dual meaning of use in the title. Like it's obviously it's the reference to the song. Um, and I referenced the Spice Girls in one of the essays. 
where I talk about black friendships and how uh, my my relationship to Scary Spice, who is the one black member of the group, in many ways influenced the way I saw myself as often the one black friend of my friend groups when I was a kid. Um, so there's that direct reference, but then there's also the idea of wannabe and how we see ourselves so much in pop culture and how pop culture can make us want to be things or inspire us to do things that, you know, we might not otherwise think to do or be. Um, and so I, I felt like it was a really nice way to both tie in the themes of the book, the the themes around self-identification and and um, and how we grow up and how we see ourselves but also with a direct reference to one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest Goldbergs of all time. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that that's that's where it comes from. Okay. Um, in your chapter, Ebony and Ivy, um, you talk about the the origins and the purpose of the Black Friend. Why don't we hear you read a little bit from there, starting on page one thirty four. And it's fairly common for a white imagination to see a quote-unquote friendship where a Black person might see a relationship I need to maintain in order to feed my family, not get killed, just live relatively peacefully. But without them, you wouldn't have the Black friend in its current iterations of the last 30-ish years. Unmistakable products of their predecessors that occasionally nod toward enlightenment or at least self-awareness. And within this trope are three key ways these friends function relative to their white counterparts. One, to give. Two, to side-eye sweetly. Three, to provide purpose. So let's return for a moment to poor Katie in She's All That. She devotes all her time to trying to help Taylor win prom queen, so much so she forgets what it's like to do things she actually wants to do for herself. Kate is the Black friend of the mean girl, which is on a lower tier than the Black friend of the resident pretty protagonist behind the glasses, Lainey. Katie is what I'd call the quintessential giver for most of the movie. Oh my gosh, I've got total Diet Coke mouth. Does anybody have any gum? I got it. Me too. Here. Every conversation with Taylor is about Taylor, prepping her prom speech, dumping Zach, dating the wild and creepy older guy. The giver is the best friend who gives their all, but doesn't seem to receive any of that same energy back. In real life, it's a fairly common friendship predicament that knows no racial bounds. But why does it just seem as though Black friends have traditionally fallen into this role so frequently in pop culture? The more obvious and cynical read on this is that Hollywood has needed to transfer the stock types of maids, butlers, and other service workers, paid and unpaid, to the more palatable, generic role of friend in order to keep up with the changing times and not openly offend Black audiences. Unless, of course, it's a period piece set firmly in the past, which is how we've gotten Driving Miss Daisy and its demon baby, Green Book, born nearly 30 years later. I think this is the best Kentucky Fried Chicken I ever had. But I guess it's fresher down here, right? I don't think I've ever met anyone with your appetite. No. I've got the bucket so you could have some. I've never had fried chicken in my life. It also seems likely that the behind-the-scenes push for greater and better representation that's always existed, to varying degrees of success and failure at any given time, might have something to do with it. The predominantly white and male gatekeepers in the industry were never going to make space so readily for more than a very select handful of Black superstars and protagonists at a time. One way to slot in diversity, in the least disruptive way possible, since as far back as the silent movie era, 
has been to cast black people in sidekick roles. So um, that's my guest, Aisha Harris, author of Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, her first book in our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Um, it As I'm reading your book, I realize that you have... Uh, to bring all of yourself to your cultural criticism, which is what you should be doing. And of course, part of that is your blackness. So that there, here is a relationship that maybe other critics saw, but didn't really get, you know, what the, <laughs> what the meaning was and, and the broader meaning was of seeing always, always um, the black friend in the sidekick roles. And I thought it was uh beautifully presented and explained so that the next time it pops up, people can get it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other things that you did brilliantly uh, in the book was to talk about the pressure, or if you allow yourself to be pressured by people who feel is that your job, I understand this from being a black journalist, is really to promote and uplift um, all things in the news or in pop culture that are African-American. And if you do anything that is not going in that direction of positivity, um, you need to turn in your black card. (laughs) So you have a great uh, discussion about um, really that struggle around that. I I, I just quote uh, one line from from this chapter. Sometimes I'll ask myself, did I actually like this movie or am I just trying to be protective of it it for the sake of black art? Talk about that struggle for you, um, Aisha. Oh, man. I mean, it's definitely something that I struggled with more earlier in my career and when I was trying to figure out my voice as a critic than I do now. Um, I think that, you know, like you said, there is very much this pressure as a Black writer, journalist, media critic, whatever, because for so long there's been this scarcity. There's been so few um, examples that we can point to of things that make us feel good or that we can laud. Um, especially when it comes to filming TV. I mean, obviously, look, I'm not going to pretend at all. Of course, Black people have been making great art, especially in filming TV, long before now. Um, I point to people in the book like Sidney Poitier. Uh, you have the Black exploitation movement, which, you know, it, people have their feelings about it, but it was, <laughs> it, it did birth one of our greatest action heroes of all time, Pam Greer. Um, and, and of course there was, you know, the nineties where we had all these great black TV sitcoms and, and all of that. But we've also seen after those moments happen, always this like recession and this moment where there's all of that plethora of black talent and then it disappears again. Um, and so in the, in the aughts, especially we, we had this lack of black TV, uh, TV shows that were, had predominantly black casts and creators. And it's only in, in the last, you know eight to 10 years that we've seen that kind of well, like get better again. And so when you're dealing with that sort of back and forth, that tug and pull, I can understand why you want to be protective of the art that does get made because there's this concern. If we don't, then, and people don't go out to see these things, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to have more of these things in the future because Hollywood will say, well, you didn't show up for this. So mm-hmm. what do you want? <laughs> what do you want us to do? Um, and I think that's it never has that been less true than it is now. I, I'm less concerned because we do have all of these different black creators who are really have been managed to not just go away. They have managed to maintain careers and and continue to prop up other 
creators who come behind them. So I'm thinking of people like Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay and uh, Barry Jenkins and and Ryan Coogler. We're in this really great moment where we we don't have to worry as much. And I think that gives us a little bit more freedom as a critic, as a Black critic, to be honest and and really say how we feel and, and be able to both champion the black art that we love but also criticize the black art that feels um <laughs> feels like it's it's not operating on the level that art should be or that you want it to be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh and boy that's a tough one i remember having a conversation with wesley morris who used to work here in boston now is at the new york times uh-huh. um, and writes about culture and he dared to write a nuance <laughs> <laughs> criticism of Dream Girls, the movie, which I loved, and I told him so, and he said, "Well, where were you when I was being, you know, chased around the block?" <laughs> so it, anyway. it's hard out. It's it's hard out there. Like just just this past summer, I wrote negatively about the new Little Mermaid, and that wasn't pretty for being, you. <laughs> it wasn't, and I was like, "Look, I I'm happy for for Halle Bailey, but this movie is not doing it for me." I don't see how a world that makes such wonderful things could be so bad. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't now, one chapter I have to say uh, I loved, loved, loved uh, that you, and you spent some time with is talking about these repeats and reboots and um, all of the connection to nostalgia and how we have just lost our minds as you say, just let something be. Just do it and don't repeat it 15 iterations <laughs> later. I mean, yes. talk about that because, wow, we cannot seem to get out of this. And I am I am now, and listen, I love trash and I'd love to see it 15 more times, but even I'm tired now. <laughs> Give me something new. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I wanted to really, because I think that, you know, part of the reason why we are in this this moment of just so many reboots is because, audiences are going out for it like if if they weren't doing well or like relatively well at the box office compared to movies and tv shows based on original properties then we hollywood would not keep you know banging its head against the wall and doing this so i do think we as the viewers are partially at fault for this um but i also think that I wanted to write this this essay in part because i know that so many of us even as we uh, go to these films, we are also just like, oh, come on. But like, and, 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 and what, why are we doing this? And the more I thought about it and the more deeply I went into the, the sort of understanding of why this is happening and how, yes, on the Hollywood side, it's sort of the commercial viability of things. But for us as the viewer, we just kind of like the comfort. We like the, the feeling. We like going back to things that we remember from our childhoods. And especially in the immediate, like the moments of the pandemic, so much of what we were consuming was us going back to things we loved or, you know, celebrities and and actors and performers reuniting to do. I can't believe it feels like so long ago, but like it wasn't that long ago when you had like all these tasks reuniting over Zoom to like read a read one of their episodes or perform one of the episodes that they made like five, 10 years ago. So there's there's this this pull of nostalgia and this pull that um, is 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 just human nature, but it's also something that's just really frustrating to deal with when Hollywood just indulges that to the to excess to mm. to the nth degree. And it's really something I tell you. 
Um, Aisha, I ask all my authors this. What do you want your readers to take away from your book? I hope that, especially those who may be a little bit on the fence about pop culture as like something worth talking about, if they do come to this book, I hope that they realize how just how influential it is on on us and all of us. Um, and I also want them to sort of take away some perhaps lessons or ways of thinking about the the art and pop culture that they consume and how we could all stand to be a little bit more mindful when we're consuming these things and more thoughtful about how we, you know, judge our, judge our own tastes and also judge the tastes of others. Um, because I do think, you know, one of the essays I, I, uh, I write about how so much of the way we think about pop culture now is akin to sort of sports fandom and in the ways that are not necessarily the healthiest. And I wish people would sort of take a step back and say, okay, I can like this thing. And if someone else doesn't like it, it's not going to, it doesn't affect me. Like it's not going to, doesn't mean that my taste is terrible. So as somebody who has a finger on the pulse and also is trained to pick up all the threads and the patterns, how do you project forward about what you think is going to become um, center stage in our pop culture? Oh, I mean, I get it wrong all the time. Um, <laughs> well, I'll take your guess. You've got a better guess than me. <laughs> One thing that I think in the coming, in the next couple of years, I think that we're going to see a collapse of the streaming mo- module mm. in a way that um, will kind of remind us of cable. I mean, it's already kind of reminding us of cable in the way that now there's just so many streaming sites and platforms like Hulu are raising their prices to like what cable used to cost, you know, five, 10 years ago. And I imagine that we will wind up with maybe just a bunch of companies buying each other or like co- like collapsing into one another to the point where we have like maybe two to three different streaming sites and, and all the other ones falling under one of those three, two to three umbrellas. And if that if that happens, Aisha, is that does that mean there's uh, less access to some common places where people might respond to pop culture? I guess, you know, uh, there's not three networks anymore. So how we get to as as a community to respond to certain things has been very interesting. And streaming has played a big role in that. Yeah, I mean, I think people already are already getting frustrated because it used to be cheaper to cut the cord, and and now it's it's looking like it's not anymore. Mm-hmm. So I imagine people will probably get rid of some of these sites, uh, some of these platforms, and you'll see sort of a fracturing of what people are consuming. And so there may not be as many water cooler. Not that there, there's so few water cooler mm-hmm. TV shows now, but like I think that we'll see even less of it um, if people just decide, I'm only going to stick to this one streaming platform and forget all the others. So to conclude, I'm going to ask you the question that you all ask each other. What's making you happy today <laughs> that we we who are not as well versed in the world of pop culture should be paying attention to? Uh, what's making me happy uh, is probably the sort of the this past summer of just female-led comedies and, and R-rated comedies. And there have been quite a few good ones. I loved Joyride. 
um, which was sort of a girls trip with an all Asian cast. Uh, you also had, uh, of course, Barbie and Bottoms, which was a really fun queer high school movie take on like Heathers and Mean Girls. I just think we're in this really interesting moment, even as Hollywood is kind of falling apart in many ways. It's nice to see these very uh, fun and daring in many ways uh, depictions of women or femme, uh, femme characters on screen. And I think that if we can keep this up and, and, and keep having these different uh, perspectives in pretty big Hollywood made movies i think we're we're in a we're in a decent place i i want to see more of it so that's been making me happy i hope it keeps going give me all the female-led comedies and in movies generally uh i'm all for that all righty well it's been a delight talking to you thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me Aisha Harris is the author of Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. The book is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Ashley Sobroto. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. If you want to be my